When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Lit Up. Today's guest is industrial designer and writer Ingrid Fatel Lee to talk about her recent book, Joyful. This is a non-fiction book that came out of her research of 10 years trying to work out what objects and physical things make us joyful. This book literally changed my life. I love this book. I know you're going to enjoy this conversation so much. Um, It made me want to have circles around me. It made me want to change the way I dress. It's definitely made me wear more colours and shed the black. And it might do the same for you. What a pleasure it is to have the author of Joyful, The Surprising Power of Ordinary Things to Create Extraordinary Happiness here. This is Ingrid Fatelli. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. And we should say it's a kind of steamy, warm day in New York and we're inside the wing where it's, I think, I don't know if they kind of had read some of your books somehow, but I feel like they managed to capture some joy in this place because there are circles around us which we'll learn are very joyful. Yes, I think they do it intuitively um, because the space is opened uh, as I was writing the book and it was amazing to walk in and think, oh, wow, this is um, exactly as, as I would have imagined it um, had, they, uh, had they read the book. I managed to find your book and pick it up at a point where I needed it most. And I was on a flight on the way to a friend's wedding. And I have been looking forward to this wedding for so long. And when I was reading your book, I kind of wrote this list about why I was so excited. And the friend whose wedding it was, she brings me so much joy. And the book helped me just tap into that and get even more excited. Um, So we're going to find out why things are joyful, how you can be more joyful, how you can bring more joy into your life and share it. Um, So let's start with your graduate program and the kind of spark moment that you had maybe from an unexpected place, you know, um, when you were presenting your final project. Sure. So... um this whole book started um, almost by accident in 
a design review. It was my first year of design school and I had gone back to design school um, not really having any background in the subject. So I just sort of dove in head first. Um, I had a lot to learn. And when I laid out all of my um, all of the things I had designed over the course of the year on my table and a bunch of professors stood around it and gave comments. I was obviously really nervous um, and just hoping that um, they would see that uh, I belong there and that I deserve to be there. And, um, and then one of the professors said, your work gives me a feeling of joy. And I thought, there were a lot of thoughts going through my head at that moment, um, one of which was... Um, joy, like I, I sort of had hoped that they would see something serious, you know, like that I was a real serious designer. And when they said joy, I thought, hmm, that sounds a little fluffy and light. Um, but I also found it really surprising because um, we're taught that joy comes from within us. We're taught to sort of look within and and uh, and that things are sort of totally incidental to our happiness. And so when they said, you know, that the things that I had designed brought joy, I really wanted to know why and how. How could things create joy? Um, and they couldn't really answer the question. And so that sort of like lit a fire in me to go out and try to understand why um, and what was that connection. And in those pieces that you had made over the course of that those few years, what what were you trying to make them? It sounds like intuitively you were creating joyful things, but what were some of them? So, yeah, I wasn't trying to make anything joyful. That's what's really funny is it kind of happened by accident. So I had this lamp that was shaped like a starfish and um, I was trying to make something really ergonomic. So it was a lamp for crafters. Um, and the idea was that these bendy legs, um, these bendy starfish arms each had a light on them and you could hang it and sort of point the lights on whatever you um, you wanted uh, people to, you, whatever you wanted um to illuminate as you were working. Um, and then I had these um, stools that were made out of layers of, of foam. And the idea was to help people um, strengthen their core um, who had balance issues. So they really weren't, uh, they were designed functionally and the aesthetic piece just came in, um, I guess, intuitively. Why do you think we have shunned fun and joy? Like, why do you think in design school or in architect you know, architecture, um, you know, fun or kind of bubbly shapes are seen as frivolous? Well, it's, it's a really profound question for me because it goes to the heart of my own reaction when those professors said, you know, your work gives me a feeling of joy. And I've had to think about that a lot over the years because, um, I just had this light bulb moment the other day that I think, you know, we think of joy and seriousness as opposite ends on a single spectrum when in fact it's two, um, they're two parallel lines. You can be joyful and you can be serious and you can, you can be both of those things at the same time. And yet our society really doesn't um, sort of seize them in tension. So historically, color and fun um, have often been equated with childishness and frivolity and with a kind of primitive quality. And I think there's actually a root in colonialism. So if you look at Goethe um, in his theory of color, he talks about the fact that um, he says savage nations 
uneducated people and children generally prefer bright colors, whereas people of refinement avoid them in their dress and try to keep them, um, try to banish bright colors from their sight at all times. Um, so he's sort of drawing this equation between, um, you know, bright colors sort of speak to this idea of joyfulness, but that, but that's also something that should be sort of grown out of or suppressed as we become more civilized. Um, and if you look at what was happening, you had colonialist powers going out to, um, you know, places that they were colonizing and they saw people in bright colors, um, in costumes, dancing and, uh, and drumming and sort of engaging in very vibrant um, day-to-day customs. And they felt a need, I think, to distance themselves from those behaviors um, to sort of make themselves superior. And so that, I think, involved a lot of sort of emotional repression, both visually and also mm. culturally. Well, it's so interesting because if you're trying to crush someone's spirit, which essentially colonists were trying to crush people, you take away all the things that make them happy. And usually the celebration is, you know, you celebrate your culture with all these beautiful things, which you talk about as well. I think celebrate, you have this incredible list, I think it's 10 kind of aspects to joy um, and we'll kind of work through them. But you know, you just mentioned that and it just strikes a chord. And then thinking how colonialism is so tied to patriarchy and the masculine and somehow we've always, well, not we've, I've equated with, you know, straight lines seem masculine whereas curvy lines seem feminine. Yes. Like why have we done this? I, you know, I don't know exactly how the sort of gender alignment happened um, in aesthetics, but... I do think that uh, it's true that um, straight lines and sort of rectilinear shapes and more muted colors tend to be associated with the masculine and um, vibrant colors and curvy lines are often associated with the feminine. Um, and some of that may be physical. Um, we draw a lot of alignments between our own body shapes um, and uh, and design. Um, we sort of see, our, we project the human onto things. So it's possible that, you know, the curviness of a woman's body um, gets sort of translated and we view it that way. Um, but I do think that, uh, you know, when you look at a, another sort of stage on, when you look at modernism and what modernism brought aesthetically, I mean, that was a very masculine ideology. It was um, put forward mostly by men. Um, and uh, it really involved sort of a stripping away of ornamentation of organic curves and organic shapes um, and and bright colors and sort of preferred um bare surfaces, unornamented surfaces. And I think that has had a huge influence on the world around us and the shape of the world around us. So it does feel like we live in a very, um, in environmentally, a very masculine world. Well, something that I love, which made it all come so alive, is that you say that no villain ever lived in kind of an ornamental home. They're always those stark, you know, on a cliff you know, with like sharp edges everywhere. And um, in the book, you talk about how actually the, the scientific research shows that these pointy things make us anxious. Yes, yes. I mean, it's true. You've never seen a Bond villain in a house with poofs and ruffles, right? They're always in those very stark boxes. Um, and, 
you know, researchers have found, uh, researchers have studied our sort of innate preference for curves over time. And they have noticed that we do tend to have unconscious associations with um, curves, with things like um, the word heaven, for example, um, or happiness. And we tend to have implicit associations of um, sharp angles with uh, things like um, evil um, and, uh, and, you know, sort of darker associations. And, and the root of that seems to be um, in a little structure in the brain called the amygdala, um, which is associated in part with fear and anxiety. And when researchers show people inside an fMRI machine pictures of angular objects, this part of the brain lights up. Um, and when they show them pictures of curves, it sort of stays quiet. And they speculate that this is a very adaptive evolutionary response, right? That in nature, things that are angular, things like thorns and um, jagged rocks, things that it would um, make sense for us to be cautious around, whereas curves um, very naturally set us at ease because um, there's less chance of us hurting ourselves. And I love too that when you pick plants for your home, you even suggest picking, you know, plants that have round leaves versus spiky ones. And I thought that was so wonderful. Yeah, it's funny. That actually comes from a feng shui practitioner named Kathleen McCandless. Um, And she talks about this idea that, uh, you know, you don't even have to be, um, you don't even have to be in the path of an angular object. It's just sort of visually in the background. It sort of defines the shape of the space around you. And so choosing objects with curved um, edges and up to and including the plants that you choose um, can help to create a more playful, a less formal environment where you feel a little bit more spontaneous and a little bit more at ease. Well, let's jump to then this amazing place you went in Japan. Is it called the, what? it's a certain apartment, but it seems to incorporate a lot of curves and kind of topsy-turvy elements. Yes, it's called the Reversible Destiny Loft. It's kind of a mouthful, that name. Um, but it comes, the name comes from the fact that the, the creators of the loft, who were an artist named Arakawa and a poet named Madeleine Ginz, they were partners, um, believed that you could reverse aging. Um, through the use of architecture. And so um, they built these lofts and so they called them the reversible destiny lofts because they they literally believed that if you lived in it, you would, you know, take control of your destiny and slow down the process of aging. And you went to one and what was it like? What are some of the elements, you know, the tactile elements or visual elements inside? I did. Um, so... I, I'll give you the, the context. Yeah. So I arrived, um, I was a little bit jet lagged still and uh, it was raining outside in Tokyo and I took uh, two trains and a bus out to Mitaka because it's out on the edge, on the outskirts of Tokyo. And then I got off at the wrong stop. So I ended up walking in the rain for several blocks and it was all gray outside and then you round the corner and it just looks like a children's block set that has sort of been built in, in life scale. Um, there are all these sort of round, uh, you know, round windows and, uh, everything's sort of different colors. And it's just, it's almost like a, like a Playmobil set, um, that is built in life size. And when you step into the apartment, 
um, the first thing you notice is that the floors are sloping. Um, so the floors are not level and they have bumps all over them. So they kind of look, they're beigey in color. They kind of look like sand dunes and they have little bumps like dimples all over them. Um, and then there are no traditional rooms. So you just have, um, you have one, you have one traditional room that's sort of a cube and it has a tatami, you know, mat for sleeping. And then in the other rooms you have, uh, one is a complete sphere. There's no furniture inside of it at all. It's just a sphere painted glossy yellow on the inside. And the other one is a cylinder uh, and that's the bathroom and it's lying on its side. So you have to sort of scramble over the curved floor every time you want to go to the bathroom. And one of my favorite things about being in that place was that um, you couldn't even relax when you were brushing your teeth because the floor slopes away from the sink. So you kind of have to hold on to the sink um, to be able to brush your teeth. And there are all these... Um, poles all over the the apartment. So you kind of bounce around the apartment, grabbing onto one pole and then another pole, trying to, you know, find your balance as you move through it. It sounds like it is the perfect thing to kind of uh, spark parts of your brain that we never need to use anymore. Yeah, it's true. I mean, what's interesting is, so Arakawa and Gins had this philosophy they called the architectural body. And the whole idea was that... Um, you know, it's not just you and your environment as two separate things, but actually the two things are in dialogue at all times. And so when you, you know, they, they say um, that it's like when you're in your apartment, it's sort of like you're inhabiting another sort of part of your body. Um, and that's sort of how it, it sort of creates that awareness of how, when we move through the world, typically it's, it, has our brain on autopilot most of the time. And my own reflection was that I can literally get into the New York City subway reading a book and get out of it and just walk. And I don't even need to think. I can just actually have my head buried in a book the whole time. In that apartment, you certainly can't do that. And so it sort of wakes up a lot of your senses. And it does, I think, wake up a part of your brain that is used to um, being um, just on autopilot. One of the things I try to make clear in the book is that there's no one way to live um, that will be the most joyful and that different places have different joys. And so there are joys of living in a rural place and there are joys of living in an urban place. And one of the things that um, is so joyful about New York, these surprises that sort of hide around every corner and the layered nature of the city, its abundance and its ability to sort of keep bringing us new um, and different sensations. Well, thinking of cities, I was thinking of the incredible mayor that of um, the capital of Albania. Yes. Can you talk a bit about how colour played a role in what happened? I'll let you say. Sure. So the story begins in 2000 in Tirana, Albania, which was at the time the poorest country in Europe. And what had happened is that after the fall of communism, um, there had been sort of a, a precipitous decline in the quality of life in the capital. Um, people had started to build illegal kiosks over the parks um, and people had just stopped paying their municipal taxes um, and just uh, let, led the city into uh, a state of decline where unemployment was really high, um, pickpockets loitered on the streets. And 
people were sort of desperate to leave this place. And so in that moment, um, a former, uh, an artist and a former basketball player, um, Eddie Rama was elected mayor and he quickly found that he had an empty treasury. And so what he did was he um, uh, appropriated some funds that had been allowed for restoration of historic buildings. And he painted vibrant colors on buildings downtown. And they were not good murals in the way that you might um, think about, you know, they were not high art and that really wasn't their intention. They were just designed to sort of wake the city up. And so he just put splashes of vibrant colors. It started with orange. The first one was bright orange. And then there were buildings painted in turquoise and red and all sorts of blocky patterns. And almost overnight, life started to change in the city. People started paying their municipal taxes. And one of the most surprising things that happened was that shopkeepers removed the metal grates from their shop windows because they said that the streets felt safer. But there were no more police on the street uh, on the streets than before. It was just that um, something about these colors created a feeling of life and vibrance in the city. And fast forward a few years later, Tirana was actually an international tourist destination. So not only were people staying um, and paying their taxes and starting to contribute to uh, the reinvigoration of life in the city, but um, people were actually coming to, to witness this transformation. It made me think a lot more about color. And also, I feel like the whole book kind of sparks this idea. You know, the like being cool, like in every sense. I was like, I feel like black is a very cool colour, you know. You see people walking around New York in that and you don't think cool people are very particularly joyful. And then I thought of colours and the saturation versus, is it the desaturation? Yes. Or, and could you tell us a bit about why certain colours make us feel good and also the science behind why others don't? Um, cause it just struck me, you know, and you, so I feel like in my twenties, you know, you try to be cool and then you have to strip back and you go, this is not who I am. And I feel like the whole book is about embracing whoever we are and whichever parts of us, you know, whichever things bring you joy to not be, um, restrained anymore. It's true. If you're listening, um, you can't see me nodding, but I'm nodding <laughs> vigorously here because um, this opposition of coolness and joy, I think, cuts to um, really to the heart of what this book is all about. This idea that coolness is really about restraint and holding ourselves back. And what it means to be cool is to suppress your own enthusiasm um, because it's never cool to be too enthusiastic about things. And joy is unrestrained enthusiasm. And so you can see that in aesthetics too, right? Um, that anything sort of muted is often um, an exercise of restraint um, and anything um, very sort of let, let loose and exuberant is often joyful and a sign of enthusiasm. And so um, color, I think, is almost inextricable from feeling in pretty much every culture around the world. Um, we in the English language equate it uh, really effortlessly. We talk about um, 
uh, being blue when we're sad. Um, we talk about looking on the bright side. So uh, that's sort of built into our language, this spectrum of brightness and darkness and how that sort of mirrors our moods. And recent re- research actually suggests that that associ- association between brightness and joy is a universal association. Um, and so really when you're thinking about color, I think we often think about color in terms of hue. We think about blue or red or yellow or orange. What is probably more native to our emotional spectrum is actually to think about what you mentioned, saturation, how bright the color is, how much pigment is in the color versus how much gray is in the color. Um, And the more muted we make a color, generally the more muted it makes us feel. I think you also mentioned that just go to Matisse. Yes. Or a designer um, in the book says, you know, if you're worried about what colors to use, just go look at a Matisse painting and you can put those colors next to each other. Yes. And, you know, it's so funny because while I was writing this, I I heard that from the architects, um, Stamberg and Aferiat, and that's sort of what they do when they have a color problem and um, is they go to Matisse. And then I saw... I think a a picture on social media of a woman who had actually brought color swatches. I hadn't even posted this anywhere, but she had actually brought color swatches to a museum exhibit and she sort of had them fanned out in front of a painting. And I just think it's a brilliant way to do it because it doesn't have to be, Matisse is a a brilliant colorist, um, but it doesn't even have to be Matisse, but it is a really wonderful way if you feel intimidated by color in any way to sort of find your way into it. You also mentioned the kind of vibrancy um, of color it has an energy to it. So when you put certain colors next to each other, they vibrate and give us energy as well. Um, and in a sense, that's playful, which I want to talk about next, This the nature of play. And, you know, I ask myself a lot of questions like, am I allowed to laugh at work? Yes, I am, you know. <laughs> um, and where you, where we're allowed to play and you did speak to this amazing gentleman who I think is, did he found the Institute of Play? Mm-hmm. What is that and who is he? So it's the National Institute for Play and his name is uh, Dr. Stuart Brown and he's in his 80s now and he uh, is a psychiatrist who has devoted his life to the study of play and to encouraging more of it in our culture. And I think what he believes and what he's observed is that we have what he calls a play debt in our culture, that the structured nature of childhood, the increasingly structured nature of childhood, the increase of homework over recess has sort of suppressed our natural play impulses and really made us lose touch with the fact that play is an integral part of human life. You know, one of the studies he did early in his career was of uh, murderers in in a Texas prison and uh, studying their histories, talking to uh, family members and uh, people they knew uh, from early in life and taking detailed histories. And one of the observations that he made was that all of them had a deficit in play in their childhoods. Um, So there are, of course, many factors that contribute to someone turning to violence. But his observation was that a lack of play 
can be a real part that play actually teaches us critical skills that we need for life, um, especially in the social arena. Um, it teaches us empathy and give and take. And that when we don't have play, uh, it's possible that that maybe those skills don't develop quite right. How do we get play back into our lives if we're adults? That is a really good question. Um, I think there are a lot of ways. I mean, you know, for me, um, I recently took tennis back up. It was something I had played as a kid and I hadn't played in a long time. And it was sort of profound, um, the realization that I actually don't like exercise, but I do like exercise when it's tied to play. And so I think thinking about things that we already do, that we naturally do in our lives and figuring out how to layer a little bit of play into it can both make those sort of daily tasks, the things that we know we have to do in life more enjoyable, um, but can also sort of fit play into our lives if we feel like we don't really have space for it. Yeah, and it's kind of getting, I mean, it's being a kid again, but also being able to laugh at ourselves, like doing things that allow us to have a sense of humor about not being good at things. I feel like as adults, you know, we'll never admit we're not that good at something. Like it's this huge deficiency and learning something new is about screwing up a lot. Yeah, I think that's really true. And I think it's important to choose things. If you're going to take up a new activity um, for the purpose of play, I think it's important to choose something that you're really okay with being bad at um, and not choose something where you are um, competitive with someone else or competitive with yourself um, because it's very easy to turn it into work. Um, as soon as you start to you know, uh, want to progress at a certain rate. Um, play is really an activity that we do for no other purpose than enjoyment. So if you find that it's not really primarily about the enjoyment anymore, then it's time to find a different activity. Well, it just makes me think because I have friends who are trying to get pregnant and they say that all the fun goes out of sex when you're trying to get pregnant on these certain days. And I, you know, in the book you talk about, you know, food can be playful, like kind of experiencing new flavors and things. Sex can be playful and or should be, hopefully. Um, but I just thought, oh, the, my poor friends, you know, they're, but they've just talked about how serious it seems to get yes. fast. Yes. I think anytime you have a really specific goal, um, it sort of, it changes the nature of play because play is by definition exploratory um, and you don't know where it's going to lead. Um, and when you have a goal, you're trying to get to a specific place. So in a way, um, I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book is the innate association between curves and uh, and, jo and, and play. And um, if you think about it, you know, the sort of curving nature, the curving path you take in the experience of play, the, the not straight line-ness of it is a really important aspect of it. And it makes me think of magic as well, because don't we think magic is kind of frivolous in our society? You know, we don't want to believe in suspending reality, but I hadn't realized that so many inventions have come from people just doing magic tricks almost. It's a really great point because magic 
has sort of seemed to be um, a thing that uh, sort of leads us down a path of fantasy and uh, the not real. And yet often, as you point out, it was a fascination with the magical that sort of led to more serious discoveries. And and the reason is that magic is a, a, the, the sensation of magic or the perception of magic in the world around us is usually a signal that there's a gap between our understanding of the world and what we're witnessing. And so it tends to pull us forward into curiosity to find out what that is. So for example, it was astrology that and the curiosity about the movements of the planets that led to the development of more precise ways to measure those movements in the science of astronomy. So had we not had astrology and the desire to connect our fortunes to uh, the movements of the stars, we might never have been curious enough about what was going on up there to discover these precise ways of measuring what actually was going on up there. Um, and then another example is the science of chemistry. So Robert Boyle, who uh, is considered by some the father of modern chemistry, actually was an alchemist. So his um, his whole mission in life was to find ways to transform base metals into gold. And uh, it was his experiments to try to do that through which he realized that matter has um, sort of inalterable properties um, and that there are sort of base particles that make up different kinds of matter. So um, it really, it's it's funny that, you know, we think about magic as this frivolous thing, but often magic can be the spark that leads to a deeper understanding of our world. And in Iceland, the statistic of how many people still believe in elves was startling. And, you know, they're the most educated people in the world. I think you mentioned that one in 10 is a published author. Yes, it's true. Did you get to go there and I, see any elves? I, I certainly looked. Um, and, uh, you know, there there were more than a few places where I thought if elves exist on Earth, this is probably where they live. Um, but I did go actually in search of the sort of deeper, a deeper understanding of why so many people believe in elves. And what I learned is that it's really connected to the landscape, um, that Iceland has this very extreme landscape. You know, one night you could be uh, just struck dumb by the spectacle of the northern lights above you. And then another day you might be find yourself in a hot spring um, where the water is steaming and you're surrounded by snow. There are all these sorts of contrasts. And in those extremes of the landscape, um, you find these this tension that I'm talking about where you can't really explain it. Um, even though you might know the science behind it, it still seems to be impossible or implausible what you're witnessing. Yeah, I guess it's, the, it's awe, isn't it? A wonder which you talk about. Um, I was trying to think of the last time I felt that. I don't have an example with me because I'm just thinking, but when was the last time you experienced wonder? 
I guess. It's interesting. So um, for me, one of the things that's different between wonder and awe, because they are very closely related, is that awe usually is connected to something that's vast. Mm. Um, so you tend to feel it um, in, you know, when you're in the presence of big mountains and in a cathedral and things like that. And wonder often can happen when you witness things that are very small. Um, and so recently I had an experience that gave me a tremendous sense of wonder. It was a hummingbird visited my garden. And I, you know, I'm not used to seeing hummingbirds. We're in New York. Um, so I'm not used to seeing hummingbirds. And I watched this, this little creature um, just hover right um, on this flower. And it was just, you know, my mind was just amazed. Even though I know, you know, that hummingbirds' wings beat, I think it's, you know, uh, hundreds of times a second I know these things it still is just staggering to see it and to witness it in real life I think I was I mean if I talked about this wedding but I think I felt well awe at the mountains the great Tetons I'd never been to Jackson Hole and I didn't realize how healing that is to be in awe of nature it's tremendously healing and it's tremendously healing to feel small uh, which is what vast things can often do for us um and it, you know that feeling um which uh, a psychologist at berkeley um dacker keltner calls the small self um can be a really you think of, that it might not feel so joyful but it actually is a really joyful feeling because you feel often this sense of connection um to other people and also to the the universe around you it sort of puts things in perspective well, and you talk about um, tree houses and how they have a real sense of joy. And actually, I thought when I had a re I used to work at Cosmo and I was it was quite stressful for me, even though I had a really fun time there. But I remember walking along the promenade in Brooklyn and looking back at New York the, and how vast it was and all those buildings. And I remember thinking, huh, that magazine I work at is just one little pipsqueak of a half a floor in a building I can't even see in the distance. And it helped so much because I would get so anxious. And, and just that one perspective, and I've thought about it that a lot, that moment of zooming out and going, you know, get some perspective. You know, I don't want to be that stressed little person, that little ant in this one place, you know, one space amongst all those people. Why? Right. You know, what's funny is the irony that actually being aware that you're the ant is what helps snap you out of that, right? It's like, it's the feeling of being small. It's the awareness because most of the time we feel, um, you know, we're very aware of ourselves in in relationship to our environment, you know, at, at sort of human scale. And when we actually zoom out, we often see how big the world is. We feel small and that sort of creates that shift in perspective. Um, but for me, you know, I was a real tree climber as a kid. And I think that's where I got a lot of my perspective um, when things weren't, uh, you know, my parents were divorced when I was a child and when I needed space to think, um, the trees were sort of a, a, a refuge for me. And research shows that, you know, what happens when we get some elevation, literally physical elevation, even if we just climb a flight of stairs, is it changes the way that we think about things. Um, so they've actually asked people uh, to 
sort of characterize um, an activity that people are doing. And um, they might give them a, an example of someone is, is, uh, is painting their house. And when people are sort of at the bottom of the stairs, they'll often say, um, you know, why are they doing this? They'll say that they're painting the house um, to sort of uh, change the color, right? Um, but when people climb up to a higher level, they'll often think about the higher order motivation. They'll say they're, they're painting the house to make it beautiful. So um, often when we zoom out, it gives us um, a, literally a more conceptual perspective on the world um, and it helps us see our problems in a different way. Mm. I mean, I, I'm, when I was reading the book as well, I had this little notepad next to me that I was writing a list of the things I want to do to bring more joy, but also reflecting on when I have felt joy and I was thinking of... Um, James Turrell, am I pronouncing it right? The light artist. I thought, oh, he brings joy in so many ways and that it's colour, but it's also perspective because you often lie on the floor. Like we do things that we're not meant to do. Um, actually, and it reminded me of the family that live without any furniture. Yes, Katie Bowman, the biomechanist. She studies movement for a living and, and the health benefits of movement. And one of the things she discovered while she was moving houses was that uh, when she took the furniture out of her house, she started moving a lot more and so did her kids and her family. And so um, they decided actually not to bring the sofa with them. Um, and they decided not to bring their uh, high up dining table. They have sort of a low dining table that they sit at and they put instead monkey bars in their house. Um, uh, which allow the kids to swing and the adults can do exercises on it. And it has really changed their their whole home and their whole home life. Because I know so many people will have read Marie Kondo's book, uh, you speak to that in a really, in a way that reframed it for me. Um, can you talk about how you kind of approach that and how, yes, do objects spark joy is great but it doesn't have to mean kind of a minimalistic approach. Yes. So I think that a lot of people have seen Marie Kondo's work as a part of the minimalist movement in living. Um, and this idea of sort of paring back our possessions, but not only that, a sort of minimalist aesthetic, the idea of sort of stripping away color and wearing just a uniform every day um, and sort of simplifying life to its barest essentials. But I think that you can think about Marie Kondo, you can think about decluttering and removing objects that you that don't bring you joy from your home um, while still living with a, a very sort of abundant, joyous aesthetic. So you don't necessarily have to dress in all gray um, to sort of do this pairing back. And one of the things that I found, because I did try um, a Marie Kondo in my home and I found it really valuable, was that when you take away the things that don't bring joy, um, what you're left with is sort of a set of things that do bring joy. It's kind of like weeding a garden. It's kind of like removing things so that you can actually see what you have more clearly. And sometimes your home actually feels more abundant after than before. Um, but it doesn't mean that that's all you need to do. I think um, going out and actually being thoughtful about what does bring you joy, what colors bring you joy, what sensations bring you joy um, can help you sort of fill in the gaps in, in what Marie Kondo provides. 
And what I liked, I think your husband did something wonderful for you. One day you came home and the entrance to your apartment had been changed. And I thought it was, you tell us a bit about that experience, but I, it really made me think like, how do we feel when we arrive at our home? And if we're having kind of spikes of anxiety or like strange or annoyance, why? And there are simple things we can do. Yeah, that's a really good point. So I had a feng shui uh, master come to our home and, you know, I I did it because I was actually a little bit skeptical about feng shui. I thought um, that it sort of seemed like a little bit like astrology for the home. That was my sort of skepticism when I first encountered it. And so I wanted to see, um, because it has been around for 5,000 years, what the deeper basis was. And um, I had a woman named Ann Bingley Gallops, who's a feng shui expert here in Brooklyn, come to my home and we did a tour. And one of the things she said was that the chi was getting stuck in my entryway. And I thought, okay, well, what does that mean? Um, And she sort of explained it to me that, you know, chi, the way that um, feng shui practitioners think of chi is it's an energy that sort of swirls around through your home. And, you know, can it, she she equated it to like a small dog. Like if a small dog came into your apartment, would it know where to go? Would it know how to get in and out? Or would it get stuck anywhere? Or could it do that fun, you know, where they run around in circles? Exactly. Like where would that circle be? Exactly. Um, Can they move, can a small dog move joyfully through your apartment. And if not, then maybe um, you you want to look at, you know, where it gets stuck. And so uh, for us, it was the entryway and we had boxes piled up. And, you know, I think entryways become real clutter traps in apartments um, because you don't know where to put things. And um, so Albert, uh, I was out all day at a family function and Albert uh, took the initiative of cleaning out the whole entryway, putting a bench um, in the entryway. And uh, when I came home, it was so clear. I just breathed differently. And I realized how much um, that little pocket of resistance affects you because when you're it's the last thing you encounter when you leave the house. It's where you put on your shoes and your coat and you get ready to go out into the world. If you have resistance there, you take that resistance with you into everything else you do um, in the next few hours of your day. If you have the same thing when you come home, then frustration is the first emotion you feel when you enter your home. And think what that does to the to the rest of your evening, whether it's just you or whether it's you and your partner and your family. I know, I think of friends with kids and some of them have, I have a cousin who has this great house and they have a whole entryway with a little alcove off it with hooks for everything and everything's kind of has its place. Um, and it just felt, even when I went there, I was like, oh, this is a nice way to get in and out of the house. Yes, I think it's about the emotional experience of order. I think to come back to Marie Kondo, um, you know, she talks a little bit about um, decluttering, but she doesn't necessarily talk about this emotional experience of order and why we have such a profound emotional experience uh, of order. And I think it's because it helps us make sense of the world around us. And when the world around us is orderly, we feel... um, able to uh, find our way through it and make sense of it. And also that order doesn't have to come at the expense of joy, which I found so interesting. Also the idea that um, 
as humans we're drawn to complexity, but it really is calming or exciting if it has order kind of underlying it all instead of chaos. Yes, I love that point um, that these two things are not opposites. Um, So in the book, I I call them freedom and harmony. And freedom, um, this ability to sort of let loose and and run free isn't isn't an opposite of harmony. Actually, the two things need each other um, to feel uh, feel joyful and balanced. What's maybe why in nature we do feel awe and wonder, because it's it's organic, but there's a symmetry everywhere. Yes, and I think um, one point of symmetry that we often don't even realize is there is um, that you know many spots in nature actually have fractals um, and fractal qualities, and that's sort of a form of uh, symmetry that is sort of hidden um, below sort of our conscious understanding, but that we actually have an innate uh, natural attraction to, to fractal shapes. Um, and that that's a sort of a pattern that's sort of reoccurring. Even when we look at a natural scene and it seems completely wild, there actually is a form of order that our minds understand underneath it. I say this kind of after so many pods, but in this case, There is so much in this book we haven't touched on. Um, The bubble, um, you know, the beautiful hotel in France, which people just have to read about. I mean, abundance, transcendence, all these incredible layers to the book. I can't speak more highly of how much it has affected me and I want to take it into my life and give to everyone I love and maybe the ones, the grouchy, the grouchy ones even more. I guess just to end, what are you going to do today to bring yourself a bit of joy? Any ideas? I'm trying to think for myself. such a great question. Like, what should I do this afternoon to bring myself some joy? such a great question. Um, Well, one of the things that I find never gets old for me living here in Brooklyn um, near the waterfront is walking down to Pier 6, which is um, planted as a meadow. Um, So it's a it's an old disused pier that they converted into a meadow and it's one of my favorite places. And so whenever I can get out for um, about half an hour in the afternoon, I always take a walk down there and try to see if the mockingbird is there and, uh, and singing. And, and so, yeah, so that's how my day is going to have a burst of joy. I hope everyone, I mean, everyone will have so many ideas of how to bring joy into their lives, but go out and do something. I'm trying, I'll work out. Maybe I'll, oh no, I was like, maybe I'll have a piece of cake. And actually there's another point in your book that says, Things that might give you momentary joy are not necessarily the right ones, but I'll keep thinking. But thank you so much for being here, Ingrid. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, and also, how can we follow you? Because I'm sure when the book is out, there's going to be um, just a lot of conversations happening um, and you have this amazing website where a lot of them will live. Yes, yeah, you can find me at aestheticsofjoy.com and you can also find me on Instagram at aestheticsofjoy and on Twitter at Ingrid Fattel. And you can also watch her TED Talk to get an up-close and personal view. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. I'd love to hear about what makes you joyful And if you do read her book or you've just listened to the show and you've thought about it, please get in touch and tell me 
what makes you joyful and maybe we can incorporate some of those things into the show. Who knows? Get in touch at Lit Up Show on Instagram and Twitter and hopefully we can all be more joyful. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.